This is John 17, verses 14 through 19. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. This is the living word of God for us today. You know, we've been now for, this is our third week in this mini-series within a broader series. And the mini-series, so to speak, is the high priestly prayer of Jesus, which is John chapter 17. And and the broader series, of course, is John's gospel, which we've been in for a year and a half. And let me take you back to where we started two weeks ago. And and the idea is that by, by letting his disciples in on a prayer... His last words to them as a collection, you know, as as the 11, Judas had already left. His last words to them as the 11 was a prayer. And so by letting his disciples in on his prayer to the Father, Jesus was pulling back the curtain to reveal the inner workings of God himself. And the words we're reading, if you think about it that way, are, are the words of God talking to God. This is an intimate conversation, the entire chapter between father and son. And the first thing we learned as we reflected on that two weeks ago is that at the heart of God, there's a community of love called the Trinity. Three persons, father, son, and spirit, defined by perfect self-giving love. Each person of the Trinity glorifying and adoring the other persons. Each person perfectly whole, perfectly content within the community that is God. And then we talked about the main idea of the prayer. And the main idea of the prayer is that Jesus and the Father are talking about their plan for us, which is for all followers of Jesus to be unified. And unified not just together as the church, although that's a big part of the prayer, but even more amazingly, that we would be unified in God, that we would be brought into community with God, Another way to think about it, that God's plan for us is we would find our true home in him, in the community of love that is God himself, to be welcomed into the very union of the Trinity. That's exactly where this prayer goes. Last week, Lloyd covered verses 6 through 13 and really beautifully showed us, reminded us, that since we belong to Jesus, he's determined to get us home. And the, the way Lloyd put it is he will get us safely home. He will not lose any one of us who belong to him. And I love what Lloyd said is that we can stake our lives on the fact that the father will answer the prayer of the son. I mean, this is his perfect son whom he's been in communion with since before time began asking for this, you know, and the father will answer the prayer of the son and we are the ones that he has given to the son. In our text this morning, we're going to turn from the what of the prayer to the how of the prayer. What I mean by that is how will the Father answer the prayer of Jesus? By what means will God grow us up? By what means will God bring us into union with himself, bring us into community with him? Does it just magically happen? Like, you know, we're, we're laying in bed and we wake up in the morning and we're suddenly whole and, you know, we're, we're, we're perfectly uh, healed and we're living in true, full communion with God 
Not exactly, okay? There's something significant that happens at our new birth, but there's an ongoing process of transformation, and that's what I wanna talk about. I wanna talk about the key to the process of, of, think of it this way, the key to the process of being transformed from someone who is alone to someone who is home. Or, said differently, from someone who's searching for love and wholeness apart from God to someone who is in deep, intimate relationship with God. What is the key? And the answer straight from our text this morning might surprise you a little bit. The key is God's word. The key to that transformation is God's word. God's word does all that. God's word is the key. So we're gonna learn two things this morning about God's word from our text. And we'll put these on the screen. If we could put this slide on the screen. God's word forms us. God's word transforms us. Very simple, hopefully easy to remember. The first three verses of our text, God's word forms us creates us into to, to a new creation, gives us a new identity. The second half of our text, God's word transforms us. In other words, grows us up to live out that new identity, sanctifies us in a way so that we can be whole as we live into this new creation that we've been called to be. So God's word does both of those things. God's word forms us, God's word transforms us, and it's ultimately God's word itself that will be the key to answering the prayer of Jesus that we be brought into full communion and community and wholeness with the God of the universe. All right. Let's reread the the first three verses because this is our first part and we'll focus on this idea that God's word forms us. All right. This is what Jesus prays to the Father. I've given them your word and the world has hated them because they're not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. There's a lot to talk about here, but the big idea in these verses is that followers of Jesus have a new identity and the identity is so radically different from who they were that Jesus says they're not of the world. Think about that literally. They're, they're alien. They're, they're other. They're, they're something new. They're not of the world. They've been reborn. You know, our first birth was essentially into this world. Second birth, spiritual birth. Go back to John 3, 16 and be born again. He says it twice that they're not of the world. And I, and I want to just highlight this and underline it. They are not of the world up here in verse 14. And then at the end of the passage, verse 16, they are not of the world. What does that mean? Jesus is not you know, talking about the fact that we weren't born of the world, like we didn't come from Mars or something like that. Obviously, he's talking about where we now belong. We no longer belong to the world because we've been born again. It, it means that the, the, the disciples and then by extension us as followers of Jesus, we belong somewhere else. We don't belong to the world anymore. We belong somewhere else. In other words, old home is no longer home. There's a new home. There's a new place of belonging. You know, our citizenship has changed. But here's what I want you to notice because this is gonna get us into the big idea of this. Notice how the change happened. That the, the how is, is the very first phrase. Now, when I, when I studied this and, and looked at this little word right here, I realized that, that that word can be from Greek and be translated in all kinds of ways, similar to, to English. And in other words, it can mean in addition to that, but it can also mean because of that. And, and I think the best way to understand what Jesus is saying here is, I've given them your word, therefore, because of that, because I've, I've marked them with your word, you know, I've given them the word and they've received the word, because of that, the world has hated them. They're no longer of the world, just as I am not of 
the world. So the key is right here at the beginning of our verse. I have given them your word. There's a cause effect relationship going on. The act of Jesus giving the disciples God's word, that's what did it. That's what changed them. That's what created a new identity and citizenship in them. The word of God did it. It wasn't anything the disciples did. It was what the disciples received. Now let's talk about that, the receiving of the word, because that's critical to this. I'm, I'm gonna put verse eight on the screen. That was a, a previous verse Lloyd covered last week, but it's worth looking at again with this idea that the disciples received the word. Again, this is Jesus in his prayer. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. So what did it mean for the disciples to receive the word? It meant they believed Jesus, who was speaking the words, came from God, and catch this, therefore, Jesus's words were God's words. That's what it meant when Jesus says, I gave them the words you gave me, they received me, they believed I came from you, they believed my words were your words, they believed that I was speaking for you. And that reception, that receiving of the words, which by the way, many people who heard Jesus's words did not receive them that way, right? Obviously, he was crucified. But these 11, because they received, and there were others too, you know, they were not just the 11, there were other followers of Jesus, you know, in the upper room, etc. But these 11 is who, specifically who he's talking about. They received the word, they believed that I came from you, they believed my words were your words, and what happened in them? They were recreated because of their reception of the word of God through the person of Jesus. Here's the big idea. The disciples' identity was radically changed by receiving God's word in and through the person of Jesus. The disciples' identity was radically changed by receiving God's word in and through the person of Jesus. Remember, he says, I've given them your word. Now, now we kind of have some more context for that. And that's what made them not of the world anymore. Let's dig just a bit deeper about what Jesus meant when he talked about the world. Because I, I know some of us in the room were just like, I don't know that I even don't want to be part of the world. I mean, this world's kind of a cool place. Like it's got mountains and oceans and, you know, vacations and, and you know, virtual reality and things like this. Now, I probably lost most of you the virtual reality, but that maybe is not a great part of the world. But let, let's just talk about Jesus was not meaning the, the physical creation. He, 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 didn't, he didn't mean like, you know, the, the physical mountains and the earth. That's not his definition of world. When, when Jesus talks about world, he's talking about the spiritual reality of darkness that each of us is born into. Darkness, used all throughout John's gospel, is a metaphor for the system of untruths, the system of lies constructed by God's enemy to hide truth from human beings. Did you know that you were born into a world like that? You were born into a system of untruths, a system of lies constructed by God's enemy to hide truth from human beings. This is why Jesus calls Satan the father of lies, 
earlier in John's gospel. He calls him here in uh, verse 15, the evil one. God has an enemy. That means followers of Jesus also have an enemy. So when someone receives God's word in and through the person of Jesus as the 11 disciples did, that person aligns himself with truth and immediately makes himself an enemy of the world, an enemy of the system of untruths, an enemy of the system of lies. And this is why in in these verses, Jesus is asking the father to protect his disciples from the evil one. Verse 15, he says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Because y'all, Satan's strategy is always to deceive us. His weapon is lies. So the battleground, if you think about it, is in the minds and hearts of human beings. So how will the father answer the son's prayer to keep his disciples free from the world, you know, to transform their identity and protect them from the evil one? Through the word, through God's word. You making the connection to this? Through God's word, through, through truth. Now, I think when Jesus says in in John chapter eight, they will know the truth and the truth will set them free. You know, that's been used in all kinds of contexts. It's quoted all over the place. I think what he's talking about is the truth of who he is, the true revelation of God, and that truth will set them free from the entanglement of lies that is the world. You know, that is the world system. That is the world's structure. And as I was thinking about this, the best illustration I could think of is the matrix, okay? I, I know I just lost half the room, but I also gained half the room, okay? So I love this movie. And when I say The Matrix, I mean like The Matrix, like the first, the, the only in my mind, not the sequels, okay? I watched them once, I didn't get them. <laughs> but I love the original Matrix. Now, what's happening in The Matrix? You've got a computer programmer who, who, who thinks he's living in the real world, a world that looks just very much like our world. And then one day he discovers the truth right? He's given a choice, the red pill, blue pill. Even if you don't know the matrix, you've probably heard of that analogy. Take the red pill and he's going to find out what's really true and, and wake up to, to what's actually real. And if he takes the blue pill, he'll, he'll continue to sleep, you know, in a way he'll wake up in his own bed and, and he takes the red pill. Otherwise there wouldn't have been a movie. <laughs> and he takes the red pill and, and he has a new birth, so to speak. And he discovers that the world he thought was the world was not actually true. It was a computer simulation. And artificial intelligence had, you know, was in battle with mankind and, and everything around him was, was fake. What was just zeros and ones, you know? And, and this is blowing his mind. It takes him a long time to adjust and, and, and he starts sort of training. Well, how, how does he train? Like he learns to fight Kung Fu, but what's actually going on is he's learning to train his mind on what's true and what's not true, what's real and what's not real. You see where I'm going with this illustration. Once Neo understands the truth about reality, he's no longer a slave to the simulation. He becomes a free agent. What set him free? Truth set him free. A particular revelation set him free. And the very next thing that happens to Neo is he becomes, you know, public enemy number one of the artificial intelligence that created the matrix. And, 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 and why, why did they hate him? Why were they against him? Well, he no longer belonged to the lie. He no longer belonged to the world, so to speak. Now, I'm not saying The Matrix is a Christian film. Like They actually dumped all kinds of like different religious influences, Eastern religions, et cetera, into this movie and made one big stew. But what I am saying is it's a great illustration of what happens in someone's life when God's revelation through Jesus becomes real to them. 
It sets them free. They, they start re- realizing if Jesus is actually God's revelation of what's true, then, then, then what, what that means is that he's also God's revelation of what's true about the, about the world, about the universe, about lies and truth and all these kinds of things. And, and over time, we're sort of trained to think according to the revelation of God. Remember, according to John chapter one, Jesus is God's word made flesh. Jesus himself in John 14 said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. You know, Jesus saying, I am the truth. Who's, who says that? Only the truth incarnated? Here's what I'm trying to get at, and then we'll move on to point two in a minute. When you put your faith in Jesus, you're saying, I am reorienting my life around God's revelation through the person of Jesus. I'm, I'm reorienting my life. I'm taking the red pill. Okay, like <laughs> you ever thought about following Jesus like, like this? You're saying, I'm choosing to believe that Jesus and, and this book, which all points to Jesus, by the way, is more true than anything else that I see with my own physical eyes. More true, y'all, than this table that I'm pounding on right now. Why is that? How could that be? Of course, this table's real. How could Jesus be more true and more real than the table? 10,000 years from now, this table won't exist anymore. Jesus will. Jesus will still be real, do you see? Therefore, when you receive God's word in the person of Jesus, just as these 11 disciples did, you're formed into a new person. You're, you're reformed. You're set free from the world, from you know, this system of lies. And, and, and you're, 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 you're free. You're free to follow truth, capital T truth, who is Jesus Christ. You're remade. You have a new identity. You no longer belong to the world. You see yourself in these verses? I hope that you do. So this is point one. God's word forms us. It forms us into a totally new identity. Like we're reborn. Our eyes are open for the first time. We can see the light. And all these images of John hopefully are starting to make sense to you. Darkness and light and these kinds of things. Now, part two, point two. Not only does God's word form us, but it transforms us. It's what grows us up. It's what what trains us to, to see with true eyes. Look at verses 17 through 19. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I've sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. This is a beautiful passage. If you're not scared away by the word sanctify, if you understand what the word sanctify means. Sanctify has become kind of just like a I don't know, just a weird religious word. If you were to go to a bunch of random people on the street and say like, who here wants to be sanctified? No one's gonna raise their hand, you know, except like, you know, one or two like Christians in the room that have maybe done some study on this word. But sanctify actually is an amazing word. And you want to be sanctified whether you know it or not. And most people, they think, well, that just means like clean, like stop sinning and this kind of thing. Well, that's kind of part of it. But sanctify it means to, to set them apart, to set something apart, and, and specifically to set it apart for sacred use. So you, you'd sanctify like certain instruments for use in the, the temple or in the tabernacle or other things. It's to set these things apart. They're to be used in this holy space and for this holy 
purpose. By the way, holy also is, comes from the same root. It's set apart. Sanctified, holy just means set apart. Now, that may still not sound like winsome to you. That may still not sound desirable to you. Well, I don't know that I really want to be set apart. Are you talking about becoming a preacher or something like that? No, no, no. I want you to think about it like this. Human beings were designed to be set apart for sacred use. It's embedded in the core of of who we are. And any creature, when they're living out their their full design, is most alive. So human beings, when God made us, he, he stamped us with his image. And that's what makes us unique in all the creation. We have the image of God on us. And, and we don't know all that that means. But we knew that, do, do know that that was a way that he set us apart for a purpose, for sacred use, you see. And then he gave the task to human beings, says, rule over the world. In other words, represent me and my government to the creation This is the the prime calling on on human beings, you see. We were made in God's image, given stewardship over the earth. Our primary task is to represent God on this planet. So when a human being is fully alive, operating in the sweet spot of their design, that's exactly what they're doing. And it happens in all kinds of businesses, in all kinds of industries, in all kinds of of caretaking, and and, and all kinds of, of gardening, literal and illustrative. Imagine going up to that same group of people on the street and instead of saying, who here wants to be sanctified? You say, who here wants to live out your core purpose? Who here wants to be fully alive? Who, who here would like to experience life the way it was really meant to be experienced? You know, who would like to commune with their creator and, and achieve their full potential through creativity and freedom and work that fits you like a glove? Who'd like to find their calling, you see? Don't you hear echoes of all the secular books that have been written? You know, it's like, find your self-actualization. What scripture would call us to is to be set apart for holy use, to lean into that identity, to to grow up in it, to, to, to learn how that God would use you fully alive in whatever vocation and people he's called you to. I believe Jesus had all that and more in mind when he said, sanctify them. It's not just about help keep them from sinning, okay? That's a part of being set apart. But help them to to live out the way that you've called them to live as, as whole human beings, just as I have lived on this earth. And how are we going to be sanctified? In the truth. He says, sanctify them in the truth. And then down here at the end, he's sanctified in truth. Well, what is truth? The word of God. God's word forms us. God's word transforms us. You see, the very thing that creates us also grows us up. How does this work? How does God's word, the truth of God's word, transform us? This is the last thing, last thing we're going to talk about this morning. How, how, does it, how does it work? Well, first of all, remember, we're not talking about just any truth. Here. It's not like um, math, you know, like there's a lot of true things in math, right? I, math is cool, but math will not transform you. Now, maybe a geometry teacher in the room might argue with me otherwise, but, but I, I, I'm, I'm guessing you've never been transformed from the inside out by a math equation. So here's the principle. All truth is powerful, but not all truth transforms. The particular truth that transforms you 
or as the word is written here, sanctifies you, is God's word. Your word, God, is truth. Your word is the truth that will sanctify, the, the truth that will grow us up and transform us. But why is God's word transformative? Why does God's word have the power to do that? It, this, is, this is a beautiful thing to think about because ultimately God's word is not just a revelation of facts. It's the revelation of his person. Ultimately, God's word is personal, you know? In other words, through God's word, he reveals himself to us. And in revealing himself to us, he draws us to himself relationally. God's word, you all, is a critical way that God moves toward us. When I met Jody, I saw her in a big group of people. Okay, we were in college together and she showed up for this like prayer night thing that I was at. You know, I saw her across the room. She was new and I was like, wow, who's that? You know, she stood out. And then I learned some things about Jody before I ever met her. You know, this person knew her, so I talked to this person. But I knew at some point in time, if I really wanted to know Jody and I wanted her to know me, I was gonna have to talk to her. I was gonna have to get up the courage to go up to this beautiful woman and, and introduce myself to her. And, and, and that's what I did, you see. The, the only way to be known by someone is to get in communication with them, to talk, to reveal yourself. Communication forms relationship. God's word is a primary way that he moves toward us relationally. But again, you have to receive it. You have to receive it. By the way, this is why I think if someone's unwilling to open themselves up to a relationship with the God of the scripture, they can study the scripture their entire life and never be transformed by it. They can study this book their whole life, and some have, and never find life in the book. There were a lot of people like that in Jesus' day. Hey, there's a lot of people like that in our day. But y'all, the religious leaders of their time, man, they, they knew their scripture way better than we know our scripture, right? You know, you're like, well, they only had the Old Testament. But y'all, they knew that Old Testament. They had huge chunks of the law of Moses memorized. I mean, these were brilliant individuals. And, and you know what? You know, you might think when, when God is revealed in the person of Jesus, he'd, he'd come first to those people and he'd just say, man, you are nailing it. You've just hid my word inside your heart and you're living it out, this kind of thing. That's not what happened. Here's what he said to those people. John chapter five. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Oh my Jesus is saying, apart from me, there's no life in God's word. Do you believe that? I believe that. Jesus is the fullness of God's word. He is the embodiment of God's word. He is the word made flesh. He is the truth. 
Every verse in the Old Testament points toward him. Every verse in the New Testament points toward him. He, he is what the word of God is about. He is who the word of God is about. He is, in fact, in himself, the word alive. What we believe about scripture here at Fellowship is, is that no portion of the scripture, Old Testament or New Testament, is fully understood until it finds its meaning in Jesus. And no portion of the Bible is fully applied until it causes us to, to follow Jesus or worship Jesus or adore Jesus or, you know, it points our attention and our mind and our heart to Jesus Christ. That is God's word properly heard. Jesus is the central truth of the word. Jesus is the one who sanctifies us. I want to apply this to our lives before we take communion together. What we've been doing the last 30 minutes or so, y'all, this is one of my favorite things in all the world to do. And, and I, don't, I don't mean teaching, actually. What, what I'm, I'm talking about is just looking together with people, with a group of people, small group, one-on-one, whatever, into God's word, finding Jesus in the scripture, uh, engaging it with our minds and, and allowing sort of our hearts to be falling in love with Christ more and more and more. And I was reflecting on this. I, I, I wanted to think about this question with you. What's actually happening as we dive into God's word together? In, in this context, in your small group, even on your own, and you read the Bible and study the Bible on your own or with your spouse or your family or whoever, what's actually happening? God's word is forming you and God's word is transforming you. That's what's actually happening in real time as we dive into God's word together. That is why we say, after we read the scripture each time, this is the living word of God for us today. That phrase remind us, reminds us that God's word is alive. This is not um, simply a religious book. It, it, it's not a theology textbook. It, it's not an operating manual for life. It's the means by which the living God of the universe makes himself known to us in the person of Jesus Christ. The same spirit who, who breathed out the words through the human authors over thousands of years as this book was, was written is, is the same God, the same spirit who dwells in us and re-speaks the words to our ears and, and, and draws us closer to the God of the scripture. The question for us this morning to apply to our lives is, are we listening? Take out the elements of the communion of the Lord's Supper with me together and I'll call the band out as I do this. You can go ahead and be getting them ready, but before you actually eat them, before we eat them together, I, I wanna go, go to the last verse of our text this morning. You'll notice what Jesus says, for their sake I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. What, what's interesting about this word in the Greek, it's the exact same word here, here, and here. It's sanctify. What, I think the reason that the ESV didn't translate it that way is because in our modern English, sanctify has kind of become this idea, I've got to clean myself up. You know, Jesus didn't need to clean himself up because he was already clean. I think that's probably why they didn't choose that word. But if you think about it as set apart, what Jesus is saying is, for their sake, I set myself apart. Now, how was Jesus setting himself apart? 
by becoming the once for all final sacrifice for the sins of mankind. He was, he was setting himself apart in a profound and unique way in all of human history. Why did he go to those lengths? Well, it's right here in our text. For their sake. For the 11? Jesus died for the 11? Oh no. For all also who would come after them by hearing and believing their word. That's you and me, every other Christian who's ever put their faith in Jesus Christ. And if you're a part of that beautiful community of faith, you're invited to the table this morning. If you're not yet, I encourage you to pray during this time. Ask God would just keep revealing himself to you little by little. If you're ready to put your faith in Jesus, join with us this morning. You can simply believe he, he died for you. He lived life that you couldn't live and died the death you deserved. And he was raised on the third day. And by putting your faith in the revelation of God in Jesus, Jesus Christ, you may have life as well. This points us to the body of Jesus Christ broken for us, set apart for us. Let's eat with gladness. The cup as well, it points us to the blood of Jesus that was shed for us to cleanse us from our sin, make us united with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. Through faith and with gratitude, we drink this cup.